0: what is honor? What is honor? Do you have an idea of what honor is? And and is it important? Obviously, it's important because God's Word tells us to honor Him. But what about honoring others? Do you know what it means or what it looks like to honor others? Um, There was this missionary to Japan that uh, was recounting a story uh, to me of of this Japanese man and another missionary uh, that, that had this exchange of gifts, and here's how it went. This missionary gave a small gift to this man, uh, just in kindness, he began to befriend him in their daily life, and the next time, uh, so the Japanese man returned another small gift, a little bit nicer than what he had received, but uh, returned the gift, and so the missionary, assuming that their relationship was progressing, it was reciprocal, right, uh, gave him a little bit nicer gift. right. And a little while later, the Japanese man gave him a little bit nicer gift than that. And this went on for quite some time few years. This escalating of gifts. Well, the missionary uh, one day goes and, and sees the Japanese man and he's, he's distraught. His family has hit hard financial times and, and they're going to lose their home. And so the missionary loving this man, wanting to help him and serve him, invites him uh, and his family to come live with them. And this is just overwhelming for the Japanese man. And, and he tries to refuse, but what's he going to do? He has nowhere to live. And so he goes and, and lives with this missionary. And the missionary over time begins to notice that the, the, the Japanese man, the, the, his countenance has changed in their relationship. There, there seems to be some distance now and, and something off. And the missionary not sure what's going on. And, the, and one day, uh, finally, this Japanese man begins to break down in tears. And he, he try and um, and uh, sorry, he with great emotion and, and tears uh, went to the missionary, and asked him, how do I become a Christian? And the missionary thinks, of course, wow, it's worked. Finally, after all this time, all this work, all this sharing the gospel, he wants to become a Christian. But this doesn't seem right. Something's off still. And so he asks him, why now? Why after all this time are you finally ready to become a Christian? He said it was, only, it was the only gift he could think to give the missionary that was equal to the gift the missionary had given him. He couldn't afford to buy anything else. This missionary had provided so much for him, he was indebted to him. And this was the only thing he could think to repay him. And so the missionary learned a new application of their honor culture. And so some cultures, as we know, as you may be aware, uh, are based on honor. And, and there's a whole system in place. And, and some of them have different idiosyncrasies, right? And this one was a little bit different. That if you give a gift, that person's indebted to give you another gift of equal or greater value. And that escalation wasn't their friendship growing, wasn't their relationship growing. It was this honor-based system at play. And so the missionary repents and and asks this man to forgive him and explains again the gospel. And I don't know how that story ends. Sorry. (laughs) I apologize, but that's just the way it is. So that sounds strange to most of us, though, this this idea of honor. Um, But the, the weird thing is, our culture used to be an honor-based culture a long time ago. It's been quite some time now, and so it seems foreign to us, but our, our culture was an honor-based culture for a long time. Now I believe that, that one of the reasons that we've gone away from this is because there were some abuses in an honor-based culture. There are some, some strengths to an honor-based culture, and there's some real weaknesses. And outside of the gospel, those weaknesses can become very large and very dangerous. And so um, the abuses that happened in the name of honor were real and and some perceived led to a reaction of rejecting this idea of living by a code of honor. And one of those reasons I think uh, that 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 happens is why it goes towards abuse is because uh, our culture and and others have fallen into this as well, begin to shift from living honorably, doing the honorable thing uh, to defending themselves, defending their honor from any potentially shameful act, if that makes sense. So rather than focusing on doing the honorable thing and letting God sort out other people's perceptions and and whether what they did was right or not, they valued their honor in the eyes of others so much that they were eventually willing to kill to keep any shameful acts from coming to light. And that leads to a question. Does the abuse of a good thing mean it isn't actually a good thing? Or if it is a good thing, should it still be avoided because of the potential abuse that could happen if we allow it to be practiced? Those are important questions to consider, especially in light of what God calls us to in His Word. He calls us to live honorable lives. He calls us to do good things like discipline our children, for example. But now, culturally, because some have abused the good things, we timidly engage at the bare minimum level we think is is acceptable to others at best. Or we completely avoid it or discard it at worst. So why do I bring this up? because our passage today doesn't just mention honor a couple of times. I hope to show you how this chapter is actually based on honor from start to finish. And so Romans 12 is like a tree with a lot of branches. There's lots of branches that we can get out and swing on and explore and have a good time. But what I think is going to be most helpful to you because we don't have time to do all that is to stay close to the trunk and hopefully show how some of those branches are attached so that in your own time, you can go out and swing on those branches and know how they're attached to the tree and why it matters. If that makes sense. So how do we know what the Bible is saying when it tells us to honor God and others, especially in our situation where we don't live in an honor culture? What is honor? How do we honor our father and mother, for example? That's a question for many of us adult children. What does it look like for us to continue to honor our father and mother? Some of those challenges are are real. What does it look like to honor others? How do we teach our children to honor us? Because Ephesians says that pleases God, and so we should want to teach them to honor us. Is it what feels like honor? Is that what honor is? If it feels like it's honoring, then that must be honor? Or does the Bible actually teach us what it is to honor God and others? Is it simply showing respect in our actions, and our taking the right tone of voice? Is that honoring somebody? Partly. Is it giving praise for something well done? Can be part of it. Is it giving a better gift than you received, like the Japanese gentleman? What is honor? Before I define that, we're going to do a brief review, and then look at our text, and then we'll jump in. So, in this book, first 11 chapters we've covered so far in our occasional series, Paul has been addressing Greeks and Jews in this letter. Here in 12, we get to the first of this deep dive into an application, the applications of the theology and and the redemptive history that he's laid out in the first 11 chapters. Remember, remember, the thesis is found in 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and the Greek also, right? And then we saw in chapter 3 the pattern of sin and God's righteous judgment. And we see in 4 and 5 that no one, Jew or Gentile, has a righteousness of their own. Everyone, even Abraham, is justified by faith in chapter 5. We see in chapter 6 that we're dead in Adam, but we are made alive in Christ. Chapter 7, we begin understanding the law and and being released from it in the gospel. Chapter 8 helps us understand the work of the Spirit in applying God's promises to us. Then in 9 through 11, we see uh, Paul showing Jews and Gentiles how God is consistent with His treatment of them both and with His revealed Word in the Old Covenant. Remember that Paul is making arguments that span multiple chapters at times to show how the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. And now that we have finished most of those arguments... Many people think that now it's just kind of a string of pearls of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's kind of random or shotgun approach. It's not that. There are are threads that tie these things together, that that link them together like a chain more so than a, a string of pearls. It's not wisdom literature now. He's still making arguments. So Paul shifts to how this truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ should cause us to respond to him and his creation, other creatures. So three sections today, a righteous response towards God, a righteous response towards self, and a righteous response toward others. The main point is if you have experienced God's mercy, you will be changed. You must respond to God and others differently than you would as an unsaved person. And this chapter makes a turn from 11 chapters of deep truths and, and, and to this application time. And so again, there's, not, there's more here than I can go through in one sermon, even if I had two hours. So I'm going to try to stay focused as best I can. So let me read chapter 12. If you're able, will you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Um, We'll be in Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black pew Bible there in front of you that you can uh, flip to Romans 12 and find that's toward the back. I don't remember the page number. 891. 891. Thanks. I knew I was forgetting something. 891 if you need to follow along in the black pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there's a blue Bible there in the pew or uh, close by. That is our gift to you. We want you to have God's word. We want you to be able to read it and understand what God has called his people to and what he has done to provide a way to be reconciled to him. So if you're there, Romans 12, we'll read the entire chapter. It's not a long one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be God. to God. You may be seated. So my prayer for this time is to give a framework for this chapter and the chapters ahead that will help make it a little bit more cohesive to you. So it doesn't just feel like a bunch of a, a to do list to be memorized. But but something that makes sense and and is reasonable and is easier to remember that way and put into practice. So we'll start with our first section, a righteous response toward God. He starts by appealing to his audience, appealing to the church in Rome, right, to to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? By the mercies of God. So 11 chapters, he's just been laying out right, all this theology. And the emphasis of that theology is that God has been merciful. In Christ, we have received mercy. And because we have received mercy, there is a response that we should give to God that is a right response. After reading chapter 12, though, I want to go back to chapter 1 to see if you see the connections that I saw... As I considered both chapters this week by God's providence, it's been a while. So I'm going to read uh, 18, chapter 1, verse 18, down to about 27, 28. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so Paul begins his letter by, by emphasizing the problem, the, the problem that sin, this rebellion against God has created for all mankind. There is no excuse. It's not just for God's people who have rebelled, but for all mankind, right? Everybody, there is no excuse for having rebelled, for having sinned against God. And now in 12, when he begins to, to apply the gospel, when he begins to apply what he's been laying out for these 11 chapters, what does he start with? The offering of your bodies. Did you see that? As a living sacrifice. In, in contrast to the dishonoring of their bodies, the dishonorable passions, the shameless acts. Right? They did not honor God as God. And so there's this contrast between 1 and 12. At the core, sin, what makes sin sin, is that it doesn't honor God as God. It is a rejection of Him, of His authority, His gracious creating of you in His image. All sin, the lists of sins that we will see uh, here and and in other places in, in the scripture, these lists, They come from a dishonoring of God. How do you know if it's sin? Does it dishonor God? And so when we get to chapter 14, verse 23, what we'll see is that anything that doesn't come from our faith in God is sin. Any thought, any deed, any action, any attempt at doing a good thing is sin. If you're not doing it to honor God, you are actually dishonoring him. The only way to honor God is by faith. And Paul starts here in the application of the Gospel by telling us to offer our bodies. This is an act of faith, and it honors God. And this isn't the first time that Paul has brought up this idea. Do you remember where it first came up? Back in chapter 6. We saw the beginning of this shift from dishonoring our bodies to offering ourselves to God in six nineteen, where he says, "...for just as you once presented your members," talking about the members of your body, "...as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness," So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We talk then about how God is calling us to use our members, our hands, our feet, our tongues, for righteousness rather than sin. So putting these three sections together, chapter 1, chapter 6, and chapter 12, Paul is saying, you failed to honor God the way you should have with your body to begin with, right? We should have honored God with our bodies. We didn't. Now that He has paid for your sin, chapter chapter 6 and chapter 12, now that He has paid for your sin, do what you should have done in the first place, which is offer your bodies to Him as a spiritual act of worship. And now you have even more motivation to do so, because He not only created you and deserves the honor for that, He has saved your rebellious behind when you didn't honor Him with your body. And so we have this great motivation by the mercies of God, willingly, Joyfully offer up your bodies as a spiritual act of worship to honor God. So, what is it? I keep talking about it. What is honor? I think that is the key to understanding uh, this passage and, and the application for the rest of the book is understanding honor and what it means to honor God, what it means to honor others. So, to honor the best I could find, the best definition that was very helpful for me to understand and kind of grasp this idea that that is a bit foreign to us, is this. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. Read that again. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. That means that not only do we recognize the dignity and worth of someone honorable, but we cause others to see the dignity and worth of the honored person. How? By the way we speak about them, by the way we act in regard to them. That sounds a lot like worship when you think about it in relation to God, does it not? Now you may ask, you know, more words there, dignity, worth. What are we talking about here? Dignity <coughs> is seeing and showing someone Uh, who has dignity means speaking of them and treating them as though they are worthy of honor and respect and acknowledgement. That's what it means to to show someone their dignity, to recognize their dignity. Worth is their value, right? What is something worth? What is its value? To treat someone with value is to honor them, right? To speak to someone as though you truly value them is to honor them. To speak about someone as though you value them honors them, right? Right? That helps others to see the dignity and worth and to acknowledge it themselves. And that is what it is to love God. How do you know? You you are commanded to love God. How do you know if you're loving God? Is it just whether my heart feels like it today? Is it because I feel fond toward God today? Is that what it means to love God? It isn't just a feeling of fondness. It is an action that submits to Him and His design for creation and you created in His image. We see that in chapter 1. Paul talks about how people rejected God. They didn't acknowledge Him and did unnatural things. Right? They did what was contrary to nature. This was sinful because it wasn't honoring. It wasn't acknowledging God and His good design for His creatures. We dishonor God when we don't submit to His authority, which shows up in rejecting how He created the universe to work properly. We don't value God when we ignore Him and His design. We show that we value ourselves more than we value him. So the call to love God goes beyond the feeling of fondness, but it goes to obedience and to submission. This is an act of faith. This is this faith that says God knows what he's doing, and he is good, and he is worthy of my devotion. I value him. I will therefore submit to him his will, his design. Now, can I really equate obedience to love? Is that what it means to love God? Am I in danger of becoming legalistic? By no means, to borrow Paul's language. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will submit to his authority. He not only said this, but he demonstrated it. Philippians 2 is a fantastic passage all by itself, right? But it's very helpful in understanding lots of other texts as well, to see how Jesus fulfills all of these things. And so we're going to look at Philippians 2 some today, and it's going to help us in understanding chapter 12. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, shows how Christ honored God in this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. We see that he offered himself to honor God. He used his body to honor God, to worship God. We're going to keep coming back to this passage today, as I said, because it's helpful in understanding how and why we are to honor God. Do you see it? How Jesus honored God with his body in that passage. He offered himself up to be the sacrifice who was actually killed so that we can offer up our bodies as living sacrifices you may be familiar with the old adage if he died for me surely I can live for him there's truth to that right his death made it possible for us to live to live a life that is honoring to God we'll come back to that later let's jump let's look at a couple of applications from one and two again I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each detail some of you want me to help you understand what it means to discern what the will of God is we'll talk about that later the hint a lot of it's found in the rest of the chapter okay Um, our bodies are not our own, right? This first application point. We have to understand, we have to view and understand and and come to believe, become convicted that our bodies are not our own. What does offering them to God look like practically speaking? We need to recognize and submit ourselves to God's design for our bodies, right? We saw that in chapter 1. Part of the rebellion is going against nature, against God's design. How has He designed our bodies to work? We need to recognize that and submit to that. This ranges from physical health, i.e., not being drunkards or gluttons or, or so consumed with our appearance that we're unhealthy and, and by being too skinny, or idolaters and, and worshiping our bodies, right? And so we have to recognize the right place that our body plays in our worship of God and what He's designed our bodies to do. It also means, like chapter 6 says, that we offer our members, our hands, our feet, our tongues, for righteousness. We do so at work, at school, in the home, at church, in public. Wherever we are, we are to offer our members to righteousness. We perform acts of service to others as an act of worship to God. We work hard with our hands to glorify God with our work and to have something to share with those in need, as His Word calls us to. Kids or adult students, we work hard at school as under the Lord. We speak and act honorably toward our teachers and our classmates. At home, we work hard with a grateful attitude to care for the home that God has given us. We honor one another in our speech and our conduct. At church, we use the gifts that God has given us to serve others and build up the body, as we will see in a few minutes. We paint, we clean up after ourselves and others, we speak well of one another. There's all sorts of ways that you can present your members for righteousness' sake here in the body. We'll get more specific with that in a few moments as well. But I hope that illustrates how we offer up our bodies, their members, for righteousness' sake, as an act of worship. Now, I've glossed over verse 2 so far. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds are to be renewed for us to be transformed. Verse 2 shows us that you will either be conformed to this world, or you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's no third way. So how, how are you being conformed to this world if you're not being transformed by the renewal of your mind? It is through the mind staying set on the things of the world. Rather than being renewed, If you are struggling to love and honor God, it may be that part, maybe even a big part of the problem, is that you have your mind set on the things of the world rather than being set on things above and, and having your mind being transformed by setting your mind on things above, above, as Colossians 3 makes clear. If you put more value on the world's opinion of you, the world's philosophies, the world's solutions to problems, than on God and what He says in His Word... You are being conformed, or you have been conformed to this world. Honestly, this is one of the reasons, one of the major reasons, the pastors here believe that we should leave the SBC. It appears to be conforming more to the world and its standards for dealing with some major problems than to God's Word and what it says we should do about major problems, as Pastor Adam has laid out in his Sunday evening talks last month. But I want to point out here how much... This passage calls us to think, to change our way of thinking, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We see here in verse 2, verse 3, verse 16, verse 17, all of these verses deal with our thinking about God, about ourselves, and about others, which happen to be the three sections today. So our minds are to be, trans- be renewed in every aspect, how we relate to God, ourselves, and others. We can't just go on how we feel we should respond to God. We must think, we must consider what He has revealed. We can't just go on how we feel about ourselves. That will lead to haughtiness, which it says not to do, or to despair. We need to think soberly according to the measure of faith that God has given us, verse 3 says, not our feelings. And finally, we can't go on how we feel about others. That leads to favoritism or, as this puts it, repaying evil for evil, doesn't Consider what is honorable in our relationship with others. We must think, right? It says to consider. That means to think deeply. So as we continue thinking about our minds being transformed and discerning the will of God, we focus in on the second section where we think about how we respond to ourselves. So verses 3 through 8 help us to understand a righteous response to ourselves. For by the grace given to me I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And then 6-8 through people like to focus in on the gifts, and if we had more time we could talk about some of those specifically. But the point of this section isn't so much about... The gifts in the church as a whole, uh, Paul deals with that elsewhere very well. In this section, in the context of what he's saying about thinking soberly about ourselves, with sober judgment, each according to the measure that fa- of faith that God has assigned, this is to help us see our place in God's design. So, in light of all that Paul has laid out in chapters 1 through 11, and now chap- uh, chapter 12, 1 and 2, what does a righteous response towards ourselves look like? Without becoming too focused on or consumed with ourselves, right? We don't want to be navel-gazers where we're only looking at ourselves all the time. We are to think, though. We are to consider our place in relation to God and to others. We are not to think too highly of ourselves, but with sober judgment. So what does that look like? Humility. Humility is the word used to sum up not thinking too highly of yourself. You recognize your place in relation to others, especially God. Once again, Philippians 2 is very helpful here. Let me read a a portion again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself... By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If the one through whom and for whom this whole universe was created humbled himself, how much more should we humble ourselves before him and in relation to others? He didn't grasp at the equality with God that was rightfully his. And yet, since Adam, we have all tried to grasp at equality with God. We need to be humbled. But for some of us, this pride that grasps at being equal with God takes a a very different form. It doesn't look like haughtiness and arrogance. It looks like self-loathing and hatred. We've talked about this before. This is not humility. The Bible does not call you to hate yourself. It calls you to love God more than yourself, and it calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. If you hate yourself, that, that would mean you hate your neighbor, right? It's logic. We're not to do that. We are called to think with sober judgment. What is sober judgment? It's not personal condemnation, as I just said. How? How do we think with sober judgment? Through faith and an honest assessment of God's gift to us. It is recognizing God's work in your life. It is not honoring to God to act like He hasn't done anything in in you. When we look at these gifts and the purpose of them, When we recognize our gifts are not for our honor. They're not for our benefit. It's not to to boost me up. It is to honor God and others that I've been given gifts. We begin to think soberly about our place in God's design. We begin to see that He is the one who gives gifts. I don't have them all, but I don't have none either. I may not have an upfront gift, but it is just as needed for the body to function as it should. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me give you an example. I have a very small bone in my foot that has been hurting since Friday. It's not functioning the way it should. I've never noticed or thought about that bone before in my life. But I am noticing it now because it is not functioning properly and the rest of my body is noticing it because it makes it hard for the rest of it to function properly. Right? And so just because you may feel like, I don't, I don't have any gifts that are like noticeable, doesn't mean they're not gifts that are needed for the body to function properly. God makes it clear And using this this analogy of a body is very important. So whether you are a mouth or a joint in the foot, you are needed. You have dignity and worth because God. Because God created you in His image. And if you are in Christ, He has paid a very high price to redeem you. And He has given you gifts. He's given you a function within the body. The body of His Son who died for you to be used for the building up of this glorious body. So think soberly about yourself in relation to God and the body of Christ. Perform the functions that God has designed and gifted you to do and to function in. And in this way, you will show dignity and value of yourself. This is how we see honorable people living, isn't it? A humble but not depressed view of themselves. They aren't haughty or hopeless. They have an accurate view of themselves, and they are actively honoring God in their conduct, right? They're taking joy and serving in whatever role that God has given them to serve in. We see those people as honorable, whether we would use that word or not. The application from this section, just to make it clear, was built in, but, but we need to have a right view of ourselves in light of the gospel. We cannot preach an anti-gospel to ourselves by beating ourselves up in our brains or thinking too highly of ourselves, that, that God has made more of us than, than He has. Consider, think deeply about what God has done and what He has given to you. As you do this, you'll begin to grow in your ability to respond rightly toward others to honor them. So we'll look at that section now, Righteous Response Toward Others, Both Brothers and Enemies, Brothers in Christ and Enemies. This section addresses in 9-21. through 21. Let me read the first couple of verses to remind us. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so we see twice in this section this word honor come up, where it's specifically called out in outdoing one another and showing honor, and in considering what is honorable in the sight of others in relation to those who would set themselves up as our enemy. So let's take those in turn. Outdo one another in showing honor. This verse just really jumped out at me as I was thinking through this passage. Again, I think it was because of that honor being in my mind from Romans 1 uh, this past week and, and thinking about 12 as well. Outdo one another in showing honor. What does that mean? Is it a competition? Like you're way more righteous than me if you outdo me in showing honor to each other? No. <laughs> what that word means is to lead out in. To, to outdo one So it, it means that I'm not waiting on you to honor me before I honor you. I'm going to honor you because God has called me to do that, and you are worth honoring. You are worth showing value to. That's what it means to outdo one another in showing honor. So I don't wait, right? I'm not, I'm not waiting for you to be worthy, in my view, of honor. You're worthy because God's Word says that you are worthy. So in the context of honoring people, it's clearly different than honoring God, right? He is far more worthy and has far more dignity than, than people do, than sinful people do. Do we risk idolatry if we honor people? Some people get very nervous when we talk about honoring somebody, especially at church. Do we risk idolatry? No, because God has called us to this. What does it look like, though? We have to realize that people have dignity no matter who they are, what they've done, what they're capable of, even, simply because they, too, have been created in the image of God. His dignity requires us to treat others created in His image with dignity worthy of respect and honor and worth. We value them because they are created in God's image. And in the context of the church, they have been given gifts and talents for the blessing and building up of the body. So we need them. We need each other. God has placed them in our lives to help us become more like Jesus. We should value them for that, right? If we value becoming more like Jesus, we need to value the people He's put in our lives to make us more like Him. This is how we love our neighbor. Again, it's not just a feeling of fondness, though in verse 10 it says, let love be genuine, right? I'm sorry, let uh, love one another with brotherly affection. We should be fond of one another, but is that it? No. He's called us to action. What actions show love? Is it not to honor? Is it not to show the dignity and value of a person? Does that not communicate love? An example is speaking well of others in and out of their presence. This is why gossip and slander are sin. It is not honoring to the one created in God's image. And in the case of our fellow members, you are gossiping about or slandering God's servant. You are not recognizing their dignity or showing their value to others. You are actually attacking their dignity and devaluing them. So we must steer clear of the temptation to gossip or to slander God's servants, our fellow members of Jesus' body. If some part of my body starts attacking another part of my body, we call that a disease, right? And it troubles our spirit. I mentioned the the analogy of our body, right, and us being the body of Christ. We think about your own body. What animates you? Is it not your spirit, right? Your spirit guides your will, which directs your body to do things, right? Thankfully, God created it to run some things on autopilot, right, so we don't have to think about our heart beating or breathing. But our actions and, and what we do and our desires are directed by our spirit. In the same way, the body of Christ has been filled by the spirit of God. Who is to direct us? We want to be led by the Spirit, don't we? And so, we're going to see in just a second when we go back to... Um, see if I can find it. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up for a second. So, we need to honor each other. We also need to honor those who set themselves up as our enemies. And now, the second part, when it's talking about um, living at peace with one another, repaying no one evil for evil... Uh, He doesn't call us to feel fond about people who have made themselves our enemies, right? You don't have to particularly like the guy who's attacking you. But you're still to not repay him evil. You're supposed to do good to him. So this is an action of love, which is honorable action. We see that in verse 17 in the context of not repaying evil for evil, giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, the world may think that repaying someone who did you dirty... By doing right by them is foolishness or weakness. They still have a sense, though, that it is honorable. Sometimes the honorable thing isn't what seems wise to everyone, but it is almost always respected. We see this in, in movies and stories often when, when somebody's done wrong and they, and they do right by the person. It, it moves us, right? We see, when we see honorable acts, there's still that something inside of us that it moves, and, and we desire that kind of honor <clears throat> so when Paul says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, he is speaking to an honor-based culture where there is broad agreement on most aspects of what is honorable or not. But what he calls us to here, even if our culture that is twisted and disparaged the idea of what is honorable, there is a sense in which it is still seen as honorable even by those who wouldn't want to admit it. But by and large, people agree that it is honorable to do the right thing even when you have been wronged. So how do we get to this point? How do we move in a direction of living honorably toward others? He says here to give thought to it. So let me give us, get us started thinking in that direction by giving three categories. Lots of threes today. Giving three categories for renewing our minds in this direction. We want to renew our minds in thought, word, and deed. How do you think honorably? Well, again, we're in Philippians 2, the first part, 3-4, through which says... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That count others, right, is, is to, de- to determine, right? They're more significant. It's not a question in my mind. It's not a debate. You're more significant than I am, right? That needs to be settled in my mind. And as I do that, as I actively do that, because it doesn't happen naturally, our sinful hearts want to think that we're most significant. If, if we don't consciously seek for God to change us in this way to renew our minds in this way we're going to assume that we're the most significant person in the room but we have to set our minds and what he says is that we are to consider to count to settle it in our minds that others are more significant than we are so this helps us then not be haughty as this passage in back in 12 calls us to not be haughty but to associate with the lowly and what does that mean That word is more than than just being around others and being willing to rub elbows with people who are of a lower stature than you are. It is being willing to be associated with and to do low tasks. That's that's a more wooden translation. In other words, uh, be willing to clean the toilets and be friends with the guy who does. Right, just very simply. There is no morally upright job that is beneath me, that is beneath my dignity. So along those same lines... In our passage, just hitting a few of these do's and don'ts here. Never be wise in your own sight. Not only is that, way, is that thinking too highly of yourself, if you're wise in your own sight, you're thinking too highly of yourself. Because the wisdom people need is not coming from inside of you or me. Being wise in your own sight also leads to returning evil for evil, as the next verse talks about. The wisdom that comes from sinful man's heart will always lead to a Hatfield and McCoy situation. Right? Where they're just going at each other. They've done something wrong, they escalate, do something else wrong. they burn down my barn, I burn down two of their barns, right? That's what human wisdom, that's what being wise in your own sight, leads to. Let me give you a, a thought exercise real quick. We're going to go back to considering, uh, to thinking deeply about the gifts that we talked about in our second section. And that helps me show honor, because I value others more highly when I realize they have gifts that I don't have that the body needs. A lot of us don't spend much time thinking about things that are important, things that matter. We try to figure out a lot of the the cheat codes, if you will, for video games, or the exact sequence that I'm supposed to do something in to unlock this this life. And and, and what we're often missing is, is stopping and thinking, considering one another, considering the gifts of a brother or sister in our congregation, and how that helps us as a church. If I will spend time doing that, I'm going to value you more. I'm going to consider you more significant than myself, than if I'm just focused on what are my gifts? Where do I need to put them? What do I need to do? How do I get here? How do I get there? How do I do this? Right? You see, the focus on self does not help us consider others more significant than ourselves. So we need to consider others more. So that's thinking. That's being renewed in our thinking. In the Word, uh, this passage gives us some examples of preaching and teaching and exhorting, right, as you have been gifted. We use it to honor others. Your speaking is to be for their benefit, not just to be heard and and honored yourself, right? So speech, according to the Word uh, in Ephesians, is to be seasoned, right? It's to give grace to those who listen. Uh, Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And skipping down to 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Some of us read that passage in Ephesians and we think, what's this, what's this sentence in here about grieving the Holy Spirit? It feels random. It feels disconnected from what's going on. But if you look at the context and consider what he's saying, and remember that we're a body, we're the body of Christ, and we're to be animated by the Spirit, again, like what I was talking about earlier where I got him myself, uh, if our body starts attacking itself, it's not functioning right. It grieves our spirit, right? We're, we're disturbed if we have a part of our body that's attacking another part. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we attack one another. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we dishonor one another. And so, this is where we get the idea of meaningful membership, right? That we care about the members of our body because the members are what makes up the body and makes it grow into the head, into Christ, And so any disregard for each other, any bitterness or anger, slander, especially among the members of a body, is what grieves the spirit. So we should give serious thought to our speech. The way we use our words matters greatly, not only to our own spiritual growth, whether we've sinned that day or not, but the health of the body as a whole is impacted by our words. We need to give thought to how we speak and speak what is honorable. For the sake of time, the third section, deed, a lot of chapter 12 addresses the deeds. Verse 13, 14, 16, 19, 20, 21. You can see them there. Give, bless, do not curse. Do humble tasks associate with the lowly. Never avenge. Serve your enemies. Feed them. Give them drink. Overcome evil with good. They're your deeds. We need to be transformed in how we view those things. And God's Word is how that will happen. Let me get to some application. First one is simple. And this applies to every relationship you have. Listen, listening shows dignity and value and is considering God and others more significant than yourselves. So when listening, I'm actually listening and not just waiting for my turn to talk, because that's what we do a lot of times, right? Somebody's talking and we're just waiting for our turn so we can get said what we want to have said. Or we're thinking about every objection we're going to make to what they're saying. We need to listen when I truly listen and understand someone, that shows dignity and value. That communicates real love. So, another application outdo, lead out in showing honor. What I mean by this can be shown in the home. So, I want to get very specific on this one because I think this can be very helpful and transformative to our relationships. Husbands, do you show the dignity and value of your wife? Not only by the way you treat her, especially to her face, but by the way you speak of her to your children, to your friends, to your coworkers? Do you cause others, remembering the definition of honor, do you cause others to see the dignity and value of your wife? Most of us have heard the old reference, you know, talking about the ball and chain, you know, or somebody asks you if you can go do something. I don't know, let me check with the boss. This doesn't communicate her dignity and value to others. It is slandering her with a mask of humor. Do you show, do you teach your children how to speak respectfully to their mother? Are you following rather than leading? Are you leading out and showing honor in the home? Or are you waiting for her to do something praiseworthy before you give her praise? Are you waiting for her to be a better wife or mom before you lay down your life for her in love and honor? Because that is what God has commanded you to as husbands. Do you listen to her? Do you really listen? Do you make time for her to share the things that, that is, are on her heart? Where you give her undivided attention? That communicates value. That is honoring your wife. Wives, same kind of questions. Do you gossip about or slander your husband to others? Or do you help others, including your children, see that he has dignity and value that should be acknowledged? Do you show and teach them to speak respectfully to their dad and to value him? Or have you taken a view that you don't have to respect him until he earns it? That is a very common stance that wives have taken today. That I will not respect my husband until he is respectable. That is not what God's word has called us to. We are to lead out in showing honor. Do you listen? Now I know, by and large, women are better listeners than men. I know that. But not all women, and not in all circumstances. Right? What about when things are heated? Do you listen? Or are you waiting for your turn to make your argument? Right? Do you listen? Children, do you speak to your friends in a way that is slandering your dad or mom? Do you talk bad about them? Do you complain about them to your friends? Do you speak and act act in a way that shows that you value them even when they are disciplining you? Do you listen when they are speaking, or are you just waiting for your turn to talk, waiting for your turn to say why what they're saying is wrong, why it wasn't really like that? We need to listen. Parents, do you honor your children? Do you gossip about or slander them to others? Do you show their dignity and value by how you treat them and speak to them, especially in front of others, including their siblings? Or do we treat them as a burden, someone who is supposed to serve us, to honor us? We expect them to honor us often without showing them what honor is. Do you listen? I confess at times, I do not do this well. I expect to be listened to, and I think I already know what they're going to say, so I don't want to hear it. We need to model good listening, and that will communicate to them over time that we value them. The same principles can be applied to all of our relationships, here in our body, at work, the public square, witnessing the neighbors, family, and friends. Do you show them the honor of listening to them and not just speaking at them? Do you show them their dignity and value by speaking the truth in love? How can we live this way? Only by faith. I'll wrap up here. We see in 19 and 20, Paul's command. This doesn't just apply to vengeance. This applies to all of God's promises. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do you see that act of faith there? The faith that it takes to to do right by somebody who is hurting you. Trusting that God will avenge because it is written. Believe His promise. Trust Him to take care of what He said He will take care of. You don't have to fight for yourself. You don't have have to grasp and grab for what you think is yours. If someone has done you wrong, God is keeping score. You don't have to. If you do keep score, it should only be to see how much more good you should be blessing them with. And how much you should be trusting God, not so you can get even yourself. Once again, we're back at Philippians 2. Jesus didn't grasp. He didn't hold on to His rights as the Son of God. He humbled Himself entrusted trusted Himself to the Father completely and submitted all the way to the cross. This is our calling as well. Brothers and sisters, do not avenge yourselves, but by faith bless them and trust God to sort it out. He is the only one who knows what true justice is in any given situation, and He will enact His justice. So as we have worked through this text, you may be thinking, I have failed to live an honorable life. I have failed to honor God and others. You are right. So have I. And because of that failure to honor God as God, you and I deserve to be put to death for it. It is no small thing to dishonor the Creator of the universe, the One who created you in His image. Now we're back at Romans 1. Why is the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve, why is it revealed? Verse 21, they knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. In verse 32, "...though they knew that those things deserve death, they not only did them, but they gave approval to those who practiced them." We all stand condemned, but there is good news. Though we deserve death, there is one who didn't deserve death, and He died for all those who will put their faith in Him. Why didn't He deserve death? Because Jesus honored the Father perfectly. He was completely dependent upon Him. He submitted to Him. He gave thanks to Him. He gave praise and glory to the Father." He obeyed the Father perfectly. He humbled Himself, though He didn't have to. He served and blessed His enemies. He trusted His Father to avenge those who persecuted Him, even praying for God's forgiveness for those who were nailing Him to the cross. Jesus didn't just die for your sin, though. He lived a perfectly honorable life, so that when we trust in Him, our sin is placed on Him, and His righteousness, His honorable life is counted as our own. It is as though we have always honored God as God, as we should, and we have always given Him the thanks that He is due. It is as though we have always acknowledged Him and never exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. 116. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe? If you are here today and have never believed the good news that got, of what God has done, that he has done what is needed to save sinners like you and me. Then please consider what he is calling you to even today. Consider God's word and what even nature itself reveals that you should have honored God, but none of us have. But God being rich in mercy sent his own son to save us from our rebellion and our dishonor. If you sense that God is calling you to trust him today, please see myself or one of the other pastors after the service. We would love to answer questions about what you may have or questions that you may have about what God is calling you to. Let me close with this final thought. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We pray with you. O great God in highest heaven, we ask that You would not only occupy our lowly heart, but that You would transform our minds, that You would... Accept the offering of our bodies to your service, to worship you. Oh God, may we not disconnect our thoughts and our bodies and our souls, but may we see that you have created us as a, as a unified being, that all of ourselves, every bit is to be offered to you because you are worthy. Oh God, may we desire to see your value and your dignity, your, your worth made known in our lives and the lives of those around us. God, make us living sacrifices that bring glory and praise to your name. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.